hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week at about 12.30 Friday, September 8th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, Julie. How are you? Margot Sanger-Katz to the New York Times. Hello. And my colleague, Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. Great to be here. So welcome back, Congress. Lots of news in Healthland. I guess the biggest story of the week is the bipartisan effort to pass a bill to stabilize the individual health insurance market. The Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee this week launched a set of hearings that its chairman, Tennessee Republican Lamar Alexander, says he hopes will lead to a consensus bill by the end of next week. But the 10 governors and insurance commissioners who testified this week aren't making his job very easy, are they, Margot? I have to say it was the weirdest thing. I watched these hearings, and I've been watching hearings about Obamacare now for many years, and I just felt like we were in another era. And I can't tell if the help committee is just this weird oasis of, like, wonkery now or if we've really turned the page on some of the partisanship around Obamacare. But this was like a really technocratic set of meetings in which first insurance commissioners and then governors came in and talked about really nuts and bolts policy. And the most interesting thing to me was the questions that the senators were asking. There was very little grandstanding. There were very there few. Was some. There were some. There's always some. I mean, it's the Senate. But it was, I felt like the hearing was not an occasion for people to like get on the record and saying, you know, Bernie Sanders talked about single payer, but, you know, so we knew that. But It was much more, it felt to me much more like actual information gathering from these experts and much more sort of give and take between the experts and the senators about what the right policy ideas were. There was this moment where um, Senator Enzi asked a bunch of the insurance commissioners about if they did a reinsurance program, what would be the right attachment point? Now, like, I just said like a lot of really jargony words, but like that was an example of what the conversation was about. It wasn't about, you know, these kind of big values ideas that we so often see in this debate. So I I thought it was kind of remarkable. I just I don't know where it's going, but I thought it was really interesting. Maybe the lesson is we always have to have health care hearings in between two hurricanes so that if you're you can (laughs) instead of grandstanding, you can actually try to get some work done. Right. Everybody else was watching the storms. And yet it seemed, you know, Senator Alexander came in and he already said basically what he wanted to do. I think that was something else remarkable about these hearings is that there was a there was nothing hidden. It was all very candid. Senator Alexander said he wants to extend the cost-sharing reductions that we've talked about so many times, the subsidies for low-income people to pay their um, their their uh, deductibles um, and other out-of-pocket costs, and, which is something that Democrats want and the insurance industry. Uh, and he wants to give states some more flexibility under these very complicated waivers, which, by the way, I wrote about this week. Um, and that's something that Republicans want. But the problem is pretty much there were like there were 10 witnesses, you know, five insurance commissioners, five governors. And they basically all said that the flexibility would be nice, but that's not actually how they wanted to fix this. So that leaves kind of a problem, right, Mac? Well, they want these longer, at least for a couple of years, right? The cost sharing subsidies continue. They talk about insurers want a plan with certainty. That's going to cost money. It's going to be new money. That's what Senator Alexander was talking about. 
Well, the, the cost-sharing reductions actually wouldn't cost anything because they're in the base. They're I beg in the your pardon. Baseline, Let me just yes, say that. The I'm other jumping into the reinsurance. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. They, they, want, they want a longer period of time for the cost-sharing subsidies, but they also want this reinsurance. They want the federal government to get in there to help them with the higher-cost cases. That's what I meant to say. That's the new money they're looking at, and that's going to be problematic from his perspective. And, of course, that's what Alexander said he wanted to to allow the, the – make it easier for states to get waivers to do their own reinsurance. And I think every single person and said, we don't have time to do that for next year. I don't have the money no, but it, it Politically, it's way easier. You already have one red and one blue state well down that path. Alaska has already gotten permission to do it through this administration. This administration, the Trump administration's HHS, has told states, we are eager to look at proposals. I believe... There are five or six states, and some of them are sort of anti-Obamacare states. I think Oklahoma is one of them. That, and and Minnesota is a pro-Obamacare state, and they're, they're another one having market stability issues and ha- are, are, have a stabilization program. So could you get a stabilization program that accomplishes what the insurance commissioners said is needed, but also let the Republicans say, we're not having big government, we're letting state control? So that is... Um, I mean, the whole insurance, there's no solution. We don't know the end game yet on this insurance, this big pot of money that could potentially be used to stabilize the markets. But it can be done through these waivers, which is what the Republicans want. I mean, there's a way of circling back and getting to a win-win where Democrats see stabilization and Republicans saying we're doing it through the state flexibility waiver process in a more expedited way. Although one of the big problems with those waivers is that state legislatures have to act. And uh, Governor Bullock from Montana was saying, yesterday, my legislature only meets for 90 days every two years. So Special session. Yeah. I mean, you can do it. I mean, there's way – the most the, ele- that yeah. could be one of the changes that Congress could make. Because they could say a governor can just write a letter. You know, the executive branch can make a determination without there having to be legislation. Right. I mean, th- this is something that how they we can I can I, it's not the most elegant way of doing it, but it might be a politically doable way of doing it. But it's also not certain they'll do this. They may. I mean, Alexander Senator Alexander came out with a, a very skinny proposal, which was. Um, the cost-sharing subsidies through For the end of year. next year. Right. I think it's probably 15 months by the time they finish. I'm not sure whether he's talking calendar or fiscal, but you know, roughly a year, a little more maybe, and some flexibility over these waivers, these 1332 waivers. You know, make it easier for states to get them, make it faster. That's all Alexander was talking about, which is probably what Alexander thinks he can get. So, um, I mean, Alexander's trying to do something unprecedented bipartisanship fixes to Obamacare. So he he doesn't want to take on a whole lot. He wants to keep it pretty narrow. Um, So the stabilization stuff that Mary Agnes just brought up, it's the insurance commissioners say it's really important. I don't know that we see that fixed in a few weeks. So so speaking of what Alexander thinks he can get, um, there's actually two committees that have major jurisdiction over um, uh, the health care system, the HELP Committee that Alexander's the chairman of, and the Finance Committee, where we have Orrin Hatch at the helm. And Orrin Hatch has basically come out and said he's not all that excited by you know what seems to be shaping up as this bipartisan solution. Right, Mac? Right. Senator Hatch wrote in uh, the Washington Post op-ed is basically a, as you say, Julie, Uh, The whole issue of the bailout thing is coming up again. Um, Here's a quote. While most reasonable people would welcome a bipartisan solution to this mess, the solutions proffered thus far would do little more than shore up bad policies already in place with another slate of bad policies. We need legitimate long-term reforms. (laughs) We heard something else from Senator Cornyn, who's in the Republican leadership, talking again about this bailout issue 
coming back and being in a play. Right. And, and the other thing this week is that you have Senators Cassidy and Graham sort of running around town uh, talking about their proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare, which they say there'll be legislation next week. There's going to be a CBO score. They want McConnell to bring it to the floor. Now, we've talked about this before about its chances of passage, probably not that high, but it is dissonant to have in the same day this kind of narrow, technocratic, you know, how are we going to do these little stabilization fixes? And then on the other side, still have an active discussion about, are we going to repeal Obamacare altogether? And then we had this boomlet with John McCain on this, this the Cassidy-Graham bill well, for been, about couple, for a couple of hours, I think, we, we on heard, Wednesday. We heard a week or two ago that, you know, he was, you know, looking favorably upon this bill. And then we heard it more strongly this week. And then his office said, and not so fast, that the bill's not actually written. It's being revised. We don't know what it's going to say exactly. Exactly. We don't know how the money is going to play out exactly. There's this dynamic where McCain and uh, Lindsey Graham are very close. Um, Lindsey Graham has been out in Arizona with his close friend going through the cancer treatment. Um, Lindsey Graham was also hoping to come back not only as a supportive friend, but with another vote. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They're close. He went there to be a friend. But yeah, he also wants McCain's vote. Um, and I don't, I don't think he's going to get it. Yeah, but just as a reminder, McCain, of course, was the deciding vote for, you know, to, to make to, for the Senate not to have 50 votes to, to do, you know, to advance what they were doing uh, in August in terms of repealing and replacing. So I think they had been the, the Senator McConnell, the majority leader, had said, come to me when you have 50 votes and maybe I'll put it back on the floor. But it's hard to see, even though they've, you know, they've now sort of surprisingly wrapped up the immediate, immediate stuff they had to do, the hurricane relief, the debt ceiling and keeping the government open. Uh, I know the Senate's going to move to the defense authorization bill that Senator McCain will, will help. That usually takes a couple of weeks. They say they want to go forward with taxes. I mean, the idea, somebody tweeted this week that that um, McConnell said he didn't want to do another, quote, goat rodeo. That was sort of my favorite description <laughs> of what it was like when repeal and replace was on the floor. So, you know, it, it, it seems... Of course, you know, after McCain said he might like this, the the uh, uh, the, uh, the loyal opposition got all excited and started remobilizing and, you know, call your members. This may happen. And now most health reporters think this is not going to happen. Right. You, should we go around the table, Margot? Do you think there's a chance this would happen? I mean, I think never say never, but it's it's really hard given the way that the senators voted on the previous amendments. It's really hard for me to see how they can get a majority for this because it seemed like there was a pretty substantial constituency that were really concerned about cuts to Medicaid and this bill would make big cuts there. And pre-existing conditions, this bill lets states have so much flexibility that the advocates look at it and say, you know, that was the other big issue that stopped the repeal, and they're not really protected in this. Yes, subsidies gone to help afford insurance, cost-sharing gone, exchanges gone. I think this bill is gone. Yeah. It's I, not here yet. Not here That's yet. Right. We haven't seen it yet. But yeah, I, I, it's funny. At the hearing with the governors um, uh, on Thursday, uh, Governor Baker of Massachusetts, a Republican, although not a very conservative Republican, just basically eviscerated the, the idea of what, you know, among other things he pointed out, because it would basically block grant a lot of the health spending. So each state, you know, would, would get a chunk of money that then wouldn't go up very fast. But he said, you know, the fundamental problem is that it assumes that health care costs exactly the same, the same amount in every part of the country, and that's so patently not true, um, that that would just be an enormous problem. We're seeing that sort of in a microcosm, you know, with the Cadillac tax that they're all still sort of fighting about because it is, after all, still there, which is, you know, this tax on very high value health plans in some parts of the country. 
very expensive health plans are very expensive because healthcare is very expensive. They're not that generous. They might be just as generous as a plan that costs a whole lot less, um, but because, you know, healthcare costs are so different, which is an issue that everybody keeps saying they want to get to and nobody ever really does. But there's another um, dynamic going on in the Senate, as Julie, you just mentioned. They just did this massive deal on the first installment of Hurricane Harvey aid. There are obviously going to be more, and then we've got a couple more hurricanes lurking. Um, The debt ceiling and and sort of the, the, the some of the spending stuff going off at. We, we know that the spending bill is going to be a temporary one, three months. Um, I think last time we were here, I said that September was going to last until December, and I think, alas, uh, I may be right. Um, <laughs> December 8th. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that in order for Alexander, if Alexander and Murray get a deal and get something and through pa- help. Murray is Patty, Patty Murray, Murray, the ranking Democrat, Democrat on that committee. And if they get it through the help committee, and I can see that pathway, and then they want to get it to the floor... It's way easier to get a controversial bill through if you can attach it to something else that has to go through. Well, a lot of the have to go throughs just went through. So I'm not exactly sure where, I mean, does he try to, does Alexander try to do it as a freestanding bill? Does he, you know, what else can he attach to? It's not going to be like part of the FAA. There's CHIP, the Children's Health Bill. That was my next, that was my next topic. I can read why, your mind after all why did Actually, you... I read your email, not your mind. But... Right, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the CHIP bill, Joanne. Well, not a lot. The CHIP bill, the Children's Health Insurance Bill, needs to be, it needs to be, re, it needs to get a new infusion of money from Congress. It's technically not being reauthorized, but it's being sort of re-upped for money. Um, states all run their own CHIP programs. It's reasonably bipartisan. Is in and they yell and scream about it, but they all sort of do end up voting for it. Um, that expires. That legislation expires at the 30th of this month, not the 31st, as I once said when getting my <laughs> months mixed up. Um, but, you know, not nothing's happening. And there could be some kind of very short-term fix. It turns out almost all the states are not running out of money at, at the end of this month. Most of them have a few more months' worth of money. Um, they could do some kind of short-term temporary punt that until December. You know, because they never underestimate Congress's ability, ability to, to kick punt the can down December. the road. Yeah. Um, you know, so we there was a hearing on chip yesterday. It was really inconclusive. You know, nothing nothing was decided. Nothing was indicated. We, people didn't come out of that hearing knowing a whole hell of a lot more than when they went into that hearing. So can chip somehow be the vehicle for a, a, a stability compromise? I don't quite see how that that looked more possible when we thought something might actually happen by September 30th, but nothing. Everything is now September 30th. It thinks it's December. <laughs> Senator Hatch, who's the Finance Committee chair, who is it's, one of the creators of CHIP, a champion of it, he has been out this week saying he wants it to be a clean extension, nothing on it. Of course, it's kind of hard to protect a must-pass bill from must-pass, other, other must-pass things. But it, it, I mean, it, it, theoretically, it could fit. The things we're talking about, extending cost-sharing subsidies or reinsurance to help people get and keep their health insurance, could fit very nicely. See, the parents. Extension. It's basically the, the parents, parents of yeah. the chip right. kids. Yeah. Right. Do you think that's why he wrote that op-ed, basically saying, keep keep your bipartisan bill off my chip bill? Sure. Absolutely. And <laughs> and also, this is kind of – this op-ed is consistent with where he has been on this. But absolutely, trying to protect – you know, CHIP has gotten wide bipartisan support for a long time. It takes care of 9 million kids who – uh, can't qualify for Medicaid, but still are low income, and it's uh, done a great job dropping the uninsured rate for kids. So it's, I could see it being defended, and I could see it including some other things because the don't insurers have a deadline, September twenty seventh, to say whether or not they're going to participate in these exchanges. And we saw, um, you know, last week we were here talking about how no more Bear Counties, and or I guess the last 
no, two weeks. It two weeks ago, and there, you know, as we walked, we walked out of here, and the last Bear County had been filled, and sure enough, there were more Bear Counties as of yesterday. So we're going to see in Bear Counties, in terms of you know, most of them are rural counties. There are not that many people affected. But first in of this all, case, they're in Virginia. They're so Virginia. we've had an insurer drop out in Virginia right. leaving. I have the number here: seventy thousand. So it's not 63 counties in Virginia. Right. It's not. This is not the 300 people in that Illinois or Ohio county we were talking about. This is tens of thousands. It is significant. It's a problem for Virginia. It's politically a problem for the Democrats because the Republicans can say, look, there are counties with no no insurers at all. That's a bad thing. Well, you know, that's there's a Republican governor in Virginia. Can they fix it? Probably, but they don't have a lot of time. There's a Democratic governor. Excuse me, that's what I meant to say. That's what I, yes, there is a Democratic governor for at least for the moment, right? Um, and and he, you know, he's he's been very fighting against a Republican legislature there in his Medicaid fight. But they he has been a, a to the extent he's been able to, he's been very pro ACA. And other ones, they could fill Virginia. It's sort of like a you know Bear County whack a mole. They could fill Virginia tomorrow, and you know three pop up in Minnesota or something. I mean, I don't think we've seen the end of. Briefly, bear counties. What makes me wonder about this is that, you know, during the spring and summer, the the Republicans, particularly the administration, was using all these bear counties to say we have to do, you know, repeal and replace, um, you know, trying to, to create this urgency. I'm wondering if sort of having more bear counties now might create an urgency to do this bipartisan stabilization bill or maybe I think not. It's kind of questionable whether this bipartisan stabilization bill really makes a huge difference in terms of plan participation. It may be that there are some carriers that like really want to know about the CSRs. I mean, I think they all do really want to know. But most of them, I think, have priced in the risk. And if they're in, they're probably at a price that they feel comfortable with. It's just so close to the deadline. You know, even if Alexander can kind of pull this off, they would be passing something just a few days before contracts have to be signed. And so you have to think that the insurance executives need to be making their decisions now about what price they feel comfortable with kind of in all cases. Right. And we're talking about just getting it through the Senate. Then there's this other thing called the House. And I personally do not have a strong feel for what if the Senate passes it at this point, I don't have. I mean, it's hard to do it in the House. How hard? I haven't seen enough or talked to enough people to know whether it's doable or not doable. I suspect if the Senate passes, it's doable, but not easy. I mean, Speaker Ryan would have to do a bipartisan bill with Democrats, not it couldn't do it with Republicans only. That's always a problem for Republicans in the House. Well, he figured it out this week. Yes, yes. But, they, you know, they don't I, like I, doing I'm, that. I'm smirking here because Speaker Ryan actually got rolled by the right, Democrats right, this right. week. Yes, but the, the, the um, you know, I don't, I don't have a clear, I don't think any of us really have a clear handle on the, the House. But the first hurdle is, of course, the Senate. Is anything even going on with Chip in the House? I haven't heard much from them. I think they were scheduling a hearing, but I'm not sure if they actually, I think they said they were going to, but I don't know that they actually did. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it, this what surprises me. I think about going back to Chip for a minute is sort of the lack of urgency. <laughs> you know, everybody's been saying, "Oh yeah, we we all want to do that." I mean, there's been this. Two things are remarkable. One is that as the the bipartisan, um, yes, let's just do a straight fix because or a straight you know renewal because every time Chip has come up, it was created in 1997. There have been huge fights about it. One year, the Republicans wanted to lower the eligibility thresholds, and I think that resulted in a, a bill getting vetoed by uh, President George W. Bush just literally on his way out the door. They ended up waiting, and and President Obama was one of the first things that he signed. So there have been, you know, there then the last time around, there was a fight of whether to extend it for two years or four years, and they ended up doing it for two years, and which I think is why they ended up having a fight about abortion language on that bill, too, at that oh, time. Oh, that, yes. Maybe. That, yeah, I mean, we said before that you end up in a bipartisan place 
a chip, but you have to go through a lot of um, partisan fights to get to your bipartisan place. So but I haven't seen any of the partisan fights yet this year. I haven't seen it this year. year. But won't seen you this over the uh, – for the two, the, the 23% funding bump in the yeah, ACA, that's the, that yeah, seems that's to right. become friction. And then also this – this maintenance of effort, you have to keep the same eligibility requirements from 2010 continuing. Those seems to be two hot points that the parties may Yeah, I think you're right, right about there. There was a big it's funding bump. bump in the Affordable Care yeah. Act that uh, that Republicans, I think, would particularly. But also, like once that report came out, and I, now I forgot what agency, one of my colleagues here may remember, the report that came out that only four states are close to running out of money, that the others have like four or five more months. Well, there have been two reports. Interestingly, there have been two reports in one of them, and they they differ on, I think there were, there were two surveys. One of them was of... The, the governors and the other one was of the insurer of the uh, the chip dire- the Medicaid directors the people who were in charge of chip and they they apparently they were they differed on when they were going to run out of but money but it's not immediate it's, it's not immediately so yeah, if they're not running out immediately that means that it's another can to kick yeah which Congress is really really good at excellent at <laughs> excellent. All right. So let's wrap up things uh, this week with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Margot, start with you. What's your Extra Credit assignment this week? So uh, my story is from STAT, and uh, it was written by Casey Ross and Ike Swedlitz. And it's called IBM Pitched Its Watson Supercomputer as a Revolution in Healthcare. It's Nowhere Close. And this was a big investigative piece looking at Watson, which is sort of the um, IBM artificial intelligence technology that has been applied to healthcare. And IBM has been trying to sell this as a way to help doctors make decision-making because it can kind of – the pitches, it sort of can suck up all of the clinical research and – give doctors customized advice about how to treat their patients. So uh, they think it could be helpful internationally where maybe there may not be as much access to specialists. And it also can be a way of kind of bringing everyone in line with best practices. But what these reporters found was that it actually just turns out to be much more difficult to execute than IBM was really telling people and that there are a lot of problems with it, a lot of overpromising. And also that a lot of the advice that doctors are getting overseas is actually not coming from this big artificial intelligence sort of data crunching, but is instead the, the sort of custom recommendations of some doctors at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital in New York who are just sort of inputting their preferred treatment protocols for different diagnoses. So that might still be valuable to doctors who don't have access to those kinds of specialists, but it's different than what the promise is. And it's just, to me, it's just like one in a very long string of stories about how difficult it is to sort of bring digital technology and to healthcare, that the inputs are too hard. And, and there were lots of great details in this story about why IBM has struggled to digest the kind of data that they thought would help them be able to um, create these great recommendations. Watson was really good at Jeopardy, though, a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, Joanne. I found a story in Slate about um, the orders not to eat. The yeah, you had to fast, no food, no drink from midnight before surgery. And why I found well, it turns out that's no longer the advice of the anesthesiologist. Yet hospitals still tell their patients, surgeons and hospitals still tell their patients to fast. Now, before you go out and have a nine-course meal right before surgery, there are still some limitations, and you can't eat anything. I mean, there's still limitations, but this fasting before midnight is no longer medically necessary. It's probably no longer medically advisable. It's probably not even good for you. But why I was interested from a policy point of view, it showed what happens when evidence meets inertia. Inertia wins. It's really hard to create change. And in this case, some of it had to do with hospital scheduling convenience rather than the welfare of the patient. Lovely. Mac. 
I'm picking a story from Julie Appleby, one of our colleagues here at Kaiser Health News. She did a very, very nice story about the role of the state health insurance commissioners, the insurance commissioners, rather. She describes them a group of 50 state bureaucrats who many voters probably can't name but have considerable power over consumer health plans. And uh, you can read all about the commissioners. You can also uh, go to the interactive map that we have on Kaiser Health News, and you can find out details about your uh, health insurance uh, commissioner, um, all sorts of things, whether they're elected, not elected, what kind of authority and power they have. And it's uh, something that people should know about. Yes, I discovered watching the hearings this week that they all have different titles. They're not all called insurance commissioners. No. Some well, of them are king or queen of insurance. Right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, so for my extra credit this week, I'm going to fly my animal flag. Uh, it's a story from NPR called Pets Deserve Evidence-Based Medicine 2. It's about a veterinarian from California who writes a blog expressing skepticism about the value of lots of things we do to our pets for which there is, shall we say, not very good medical evidence. Uh, As both a dog and horse owner, I am profoundly aware of the things we don't know about animal health, despite people who swear by stuff that have no proven medical value. Uh, Obviously, as Joanne was saying, this is true for humans, too, and on an even larger scale. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.